Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 179, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Have we been using the wrong metrics to measure the impact schools are having on community spread of COVID-19? One research group says yes. And with Democrats about to take control of the Senate, who will be the new Senate Education Committee chair? Stay with us. Miss is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why it's important to gauge and appropriately react to teacher mental health. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, I was uh, hanging out on Twitter the other day, and I saw that you are apparently a contributing author now to, what is it, Women Who Lead? Tell me about it. Yes, there's this phenomenal um, educator named Dr. Sharon Porter, and she has taken the liberty of just trying to give voice to a lot of women leaders, specifically in K-12 education, but she does tap into a couple of other uh, arenas. And anyway, I think I was highlighted by um, a small education group a couple of months ago on Twitter, and I, I guess she came across my profile, did a little research, and she contacted me and asked if she could highlight me in the next book. So the third edition of Women Who Lead Anthology is in the works. And yes, I will be a contributing author. Um, I am extremely nervous. I am totally honored and, and, and you know, just excited about it. But this is um, just a whole new level for me. And I'm just so grateful. And one thing I also didn't share with you is also uh, last fall. I was asked to contribute to um, an educational blog. And I tried to, you know, dodge that a couple of times just from being nervous. I have loved um, participating on this podcast. And of course, I've I've dealt with a lot of professional development. But now to be able to literally tap into writing is just a whole different side of me. And so be looking for that to be published as well. That's really cool. So, yeah, you you are actually going to be writing in this new thing, when they say contributing author, she's not just like interviewing you, you're going to be contributing. No, we're not being interviewed. What we're getting an opportunity to do is to discuss our leadership journeys, obstacles we faced, you know, challenges we've overcome, and then giving giving just some good advice to novice leaders out there. If you pick up this book and you're an assistant principal, or even within the first couple of years um, of your principalship, you should find lots of um interesting things that others have experienced in ways that they, you know, made it through. And so I'm looking forward to sharing a bit about culture and climate and working in failing schools and what it's taken to transform them from my perspective. That's great. Congratulations about that. Um, You know, this week uh, has been, gosh, when you like really reflect on all the things that happened this week, politically speaking, and some of which will impact education, it's been pretty remarkable. I mean, of course, um, we had what took place at the Capitol, which I think is on everyone's mind. Um, Absolutely. And then immediately following that, we had the Secretary of Education say she is resigning, which I don't really think mm-hmm. has a major impact either way. I mean, she was two weeks from being on her way out anyhow. I think it just helps distance her from the negativity. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We know why she's doing it. But I can't really call mm-hmm. that profiles and courage when you're like, no. you know, basically taking sick leave for two weeks and, right. and acting like, you know, you don't want to be a part of this after everything else that's happened. But anyhow. We also can't forget what else happened this week well before all that, which was we had an election Tuesday night in Georgia, which consequently is going to flip the Senate from Republican to Democrat, which means you have a complete change of chairman or chair people, I should say, um, throughout the entire exciting and and unbelievable, serious grassroots efforts um, that took place in the state of Georgia. Yeah. Commend everyone involved. That effort was truly led by Stacey Abrams. As you know, she lost the governorship and felt that it wasn't handled appropriately. And of course, she could have, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, she could have just had a tantrum. She could have had a fit. But instead, she tapped into young voters. She tapped into those not registered to vote. And she just literally helped people to understand what was at stake. And so she took that loss and, for lack of a better way to say it, and made it for her good. And the state of Georgia has, it's flipped. Do you know flipped. where Stacey Abrams was raised? Stacy is from Jackson, Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken. It's a Gulfport is what according to Wikipedia, but I knew it was Mississippi. Um, so and she may have ties to Jackson as well. But yes, ties to Mississippi. Anyhow, so now we have the change of these chairs. We have to look at who will be the next education chair in the Senate, because this was I don't say it was unexpected. I mean, personally, I thought the Dems winning both seats in Georgia here in the South was a long shot. I mean, I I was surprised Tuesday night that that took place and it hadn't really been on my radar. Like, Oh, what does that mean for education? Well, if you look at the data, you're right. Absolutely. And so uh, we will have a new chair and it's going to be Patty Murray, who is actually, I think like fourth in the leadership for the Senate. Um, And Hmm. now she will be the chair of the education committee in the Senate. She is a former preschool teacher. Um, so she does have some experience there. And then the only thing I've really seen about like where she is on things is there's, there's two notes from one article I was reading in um, Ed week. And it said, um, she wants to quickly pass another COVID-19 relief package that would include more money for K through 12 schools. So there's that, that's something we can look at. That's awesome. And, uh, the other thing was she had recently talked about the importance of continuing assessments, which, I don't know. I'm kind of like, man, I don't know how everyone loves that idea, at least right now during the pandemic. I think there's still many states who are kind of fighting assessments as we're dealing with COVID-19. But I think we will get back on track afterwards. I think the big issue is that we want to know, we want to continue to be able to analyze and make predictions on shifts we need to make in our classrooms based on that data. So I understand, I understand so many leaders still wanting the assessments just to be able to say, how much of a slide did our students take? Um, how effective was our instruction during a pandemic? But the key that they keep leaving out of a lot of this is make sure to remove the accountability standards. Giving schools and districts um, letter grades and rankings right now, I think is just such a negative um it would just be such a huge negative. Right. Like the data is more important than actually saying, here's how we're doing and ranking us. That makes complete sense. Um, So uh, other interesting story I saw actually came out of uh, NPR. Well, I should say it was posted on NPR, but it it originated with a study from somebody called Reach. It's a group um, from the National Center for Research on Education, Access and Choice um, out of uh, Tulane University. And it was a different look on whether or not opening schools contributes to community spread of COVID-19. And it's they're almost saying we've been looking at it wrong. 
Have, have you are you familiar with this at all? I am not. So when you say they've been looking at it wrong, they've been looking at numbers that are reported um, daily as required by each state's Department of Health. Am I right? Right. So so basically, like, w- if you have a community that hasn't opened schools yet, and they'll, they'll go and say, all right, this schools aren't open. And right now, community spread is this. They have this many cases, positive COVID-19 cases. And then they look at schools opening, and then they try, try to see, well, is there a spike in cases after schools open, whether that's a month or, or a few weeks or, or two months or whatever. Um, but they are kind of arguing that the idea of looking at just positive test or negative test is is too spotty of data. There's lots of reasons why it's not necessarily the best measure. They say the best measure is how many people are becoming hospitalized. That is way more certain because you don't have to worry about whether the tests were right or wrong or if more people are taking tests or, or more tests are coming into a community. But hospitalization is a hospitalization, and that is a better true indicator of if an impact is taking place. So they went back through and looked at it that way. I just don't know um, how valid that is because another piece of the, you know, information tells us that um, generally those negatively impacted by COVID has, they have some type of underlying health condition um, that prevents their body from fighting as well as someone who is, you know, completely healthy or even a young person. So why wouldn't they state let's use all of that information to determine you know if schools should open or not Th- that that is a fair point you take a state like mississippi where we have a much higher rate of comorbidities it's it's very you know it kind of skew things there is what you're saying am i hearing you right yes that is exactly it okay so um i i don't necessarily you know I, i'm certainly not part of reach by any means but um I hear what you're saying. They're just saying that they feel like the testing isn't necessarily an accurate indicator. So this is what they found when they actually started looking at hospitalizations. They looked at several communities, and almost all of them actually saw hospitalizations either go down or flatten after um, they put kids back into school. And their hypothesis, if you will, is that you actually are putting a more controlled environment and practicing better Mm -hmm. things than people are actually practicing at their home. There were a couple of um, communities which did see a tick up in hospitalizations, but the majority did not out of all the counties that they were looking for. So I don't know. Well, I always try to understand um, both sides of, you know, a coin and I can get that because by sending children to school, you are basically, you know, you're controlling the structure of what's what's going on with their day. When they're at home, they go outside, they play with one another, they mix and they mingle. Um, The same is true within a school per se, but we are able to put measures in place. I'm interested to know if that study was taken um, before the holiday season. So it looks like they were just mining data from 2020. So to say that it would have included um, late December, probably not the case. But it does look like it went all the way through mid-December. It says their findings tell two different stories. Um, First, for communities where hospitalization rates were already relatively low, when schools opened in-person or hybrid mode, they did not see an increase in hospitalizations post reopening. Um, It Mm. applied to communities with fewer than 36 to 44 hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Um, And then it also went all the way through mid-December. And it said these results were consistent with looks like 58% of all U.S. counties, according to the researchers. I kind of buy into this a little bit. That's me personally. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really buy into the fact that I feel like schools are 
doing better practices than we are when we're given free reign, say like through a Christmas holiday or a Thanksgiving holiday. That's when I'm seeing all the violations, for lack of a better term. Um, And I completely agree with you. I think the risk is greater um, when school is in session. And that is why we work harder um, to implement those required protocols to protect everybody involved. I mean, I... I'm sure a lot of people out there are like this. I've had to during, you know, we just went through two holiday periods. I've had to turn down, you know, invitations for being with friends. I've had to turn down invitations for being with family. And it's just hard. And at least, you know, when you go to school, I mean, let's let's be honest. Most of us, if we're with family, we're not wearing masks a lot of the time unless we just really feel like somebody was recently exposed or, or at least potential for exposure. Um, and at least when you're in a routine and you're going to school and you have, you know, things that you have to do and it doesn't allow for that family and friend time, I just feel like the rules are followed better and we're less likely mm-hmm. to commit spread. I don't know. It's just kind of a different way of looking at it. For it's sure. a great point. Are you hearing or seeing anything um, in terms of like test being administered at the school level? Or is like if you have an outbreak, you guys have to still go to like a local facility. And then same well, thing, vaccine. Are you guys to the point where you're hearing like how this is going to work for teachers? I, I actually think it's going to continue being that we have to go to a local clinic um, for testing. I just don't think that you have the personnel um, to conduct such testing in schools right now. If you look at how strained our medical facilities are um, in regard to our vaccinations, that has been like my question every day mm-hmm. um, this first week back in January. Um, and no one knows the answers to that right now. What I do believe is going to happen is that they're going to um probably handle K-12 vaccinations the way they've handled the the first rollout. There'll probably be a drive-through where you'll have to make an appointment, show your badge, you know, ensure that you're a K-12 educator. It would be so much easier if we could do the vaccinations at the schools. And I agree, it would be so much easier if we could test and not just test, but test regularly uh, in schools, sort of how our athletic organizations are doing so that we can do a better job of isolating Um, when necessary, but I just don't know where the personnel would come from. I I did hear an interesting point on um, test and why uh, on vaccinations and why this is taking longer. Um, And it sounded pretty valid. They're basically saying that typically if you go get a flu vaccine, it's, you know, sign here, shot, done, move on. You don't even have to sit around. But with this vaccination, they actually want you to kind of hang out for about 15 minutes, make sure that you don't have any adverse reaction to it. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of people have more questions. So there's more dialogue taking place between the person administering the vaccine. And that's what's slowing down the lines in a lot of cases. Now, I'm sure they're probably getting better at handling those lines. Like, here's your shot. Go pull your car over here and wait there. You know, Mm -hmm. that's probably it seems like things are starting to speed up some. But uh, it's good to keep in mind that this is more challenging than just a flu vaccine. And of course, just to be optimistic again, I I just believe that they're doing the absolute best they can with, you know, it's just a critical time and people are nervous and it's so new. Um, But again, we have to remember personnel is an issue. Our, Our medical teams are strained. And so being able to pull a few to the side to lead the vaccination efforts that actually takes them away from serving patients within their facilities. I would say I know, I can probably count on both hands how many people I know who have gotten the vaccine so far and yes. um, or like, no, oh, my mom got it or whatever. I only know one out of, let's just say 10, I'm, I'm estimating one person who says like, I was sick 
for they said about 48 hours and that was longer than i think usually it's about 24 is what you hear um, everyone that i know that mm-hmm. has received a vaccination maybe said that their um the vaccination site on their arm was tender mm-hmm. sore um that yeah. that same day but none of the people that i know and i know quite a few um have had any adverse reactions and so they're just so optimistic and they're encouraging everyone to give it a try and i'm going to tell you now for our listeners when that vaccination is made um available in my area i am definitely going to take the vaccination yeah me as well well uh christina are you ready for today's bright idea oh i'm so excited yes our guest in today's Brown Idea segment is here to tell us why it's crucial to keep some focus on the mental health of teachers. Henry Seaton is a high school humanities teacher, leader, and writer. He's been published multiple times on the topic of teacher mental health, which he has also refers to as the elephant in the classroom. Henry, welcome to Class Dismissed. Hey, such a pleasure to be here with you. There is a passage in one of your articles that really stood out to me, and it's where you're referring to mental health, and you're kind of referring to having the conversation of mental health with other teachers. And I'm going to read that passage to you. You say, it is okay to talk about the other ways you cope, your CrossFit and spin classes, your yoga and meditation sessions, even how hard you hit the caffeine or alcohol. But mentioning a therapy session is usually seen as a sign of weakness, an awkward overshare, keeping it too real. Why are we there? Like, how did we get there to where no one wants to talk about mental health and therapy sessions? Absolutely. Well, I would I would point to folks like me as being partially responsible for for the problem. I think often uh, white dudes like me are are not vulnerable about the challenges we're facing in this work. Um, I think you can also mix in teacher martyrdom complexes, this idea that you're supposed to be struggling and then the, the kind of the more sweat you're leaving in the classroom, the better. Um, and I think things are slowly getting better. But there is, in so many schools, as I talk to educators across the country, there's reticence about really talking about what is going on with our mental health. And we have a lot of work to do. And you say people like you, but I have to admit, I mean, I've I've read a few articles of yours. You are arguably one of the most open and, and raw, for lack of a better term, about um, mental health and your own experiences. Uh, I mean, in, in one article, you go into personal tragedies in your life, kind of surrounded by your education career. And another, you talk about struggles that you've had in the classroom. Um, why did you feel it was important to go in and, and share these experiences publicly? Yeah, it's, it's, thank you for asking. It's something I care so personally about. I mean, so I'm, you know, in my second decade of this work as an educator, and for the first decade or so, I was pretty darn silent about it, even though by, you know, maybe year seven, I was dealing with some pretty significant burnout, seeing a psychotherapist for the first time. I think I just got to this point where, one, I was really inspired by a lot of colleagues who had stepped up with their vulnerability, especially female colleagues, colleagues of color who were really open about the challenges they were facing and the teacher mental health resources they were using. Um, secondly, I was achieving a lot of professional success. I was head of a very, you know, top-notch humanities department that was getting great results for our students. I was getting great, you know, ELA growth rates for my students. I was getting great feedback from my students and colleagues on the work I was doing. And I I don't know, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but I think we can get into this trap that, 
you know, when I get to X level of success, then I can be vulnerable, right? But until I reach a certain tier of achievement, then I need to just keep my own vulnerabilities to myself. And I, I just kind of came to this point where it's like, if I, you know, as a, as a teacher leader can't be comfortable sharing this, when would I be comfortable sharing it? And as I share in both of my pieces, you know, basically teacher mental health resources have been just utterly vital for me making it and get getting to continue teaching. Teaching is my favorite thing on this planet and I want to continue doing it as long as possible, but we, we need to speak more openly about how to support each other in this long, difficult work. And so I just, I, I wanted to contribute to the conversation however I could, but you, you have to let me know how my articles come across. Am I being too vulnerable, et cetera? It's, it's a tricky balance to, to navigate as a writer and a teacher. Oh, well, no, I think it's the vulnerability in the articles that actually captured my attention. Um, the fact yeah. that you, you were willing to share all that. And, and you said something interesting just now. You said that you were having success in, yeah. in your career. And I'm assuming that was when you were um, back in, you were teaching in the New England area, right? Yeah. Would, you know, I would have people from across the city coming to visit my classroom. I'd have students, you know, crushing state tests, you know, writing me years later about the effect I had played in their life. But behind the scenes, you know, especially by the, the second half of my first decade, I was barely making it. I was, fe- you know, dealing with teacher burnout symptoms earlier and earlier in the year. And uh, I, you know, previously had just been trying to kind of grit my teeth and just work harder and more efficiently. But um, thankfully, you know, I I began reaching out to all sorts of resources in terms of mental health. And, you know, we can talk about them, but they ended up being very transformative. Well, and so why you talk about, you know, how educators are kind of have this this complex or, or this feeling that they, they should just grit their teeth and not say anything. I mean, how did we get there? What do you, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. So I, you know, I came of age as you probably seen in my writing as part of the, you know, the early decades of the urban charter movement. Um, and there was definitely some, some savior complexes built in. These are young schools with startup cultures. Um, and you got a lot of bright, ambitious folks who are, you know, semi-explicitly competing with one another about who's going to be there first thing in the morning, who's going to be there latest in the day, who's going to show up for the most sporting events. And my colleagues and I, we drove each other to wonderful, uh, excellent growth and, and work as educators and how we serve students. But we also often were, you know, semi-consciously unsettling each other. We never felt like we were keeping up with the educator next door. And I think school leaders at that time, you know, were very much in that startup phase. I don't know if you've read Uncanny Valley, which was listed as a top book of 2020, but it's about the startup scene in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. It's it's uncanny in terms of how much it sounds like the, the char- charter movement in terms of, you know, the early 2000s. But I think that's part of the reason. But I think, you know, going beyond the charter movement, if you talk to educators in high poverty schools, especially, I think there's this this culture um, that, that teachers are there for the students and it's expected that you make sacrifices and that you don't complain, maybe brag about how much wine you're consuming on the weekend to compensate. But there's, there's this culture of not being vulnerable. I, I especially encountered it in school leaders and I continue to encounter it. And I'm again, would be curious your thoughts, but I, even over this past year, my sense is school leaders feel like they can't admit how much they're struggling to get through. Uh, and the idea that they need to present kind of that positive cheerleader front 
um, at all costs to teachers. Otherwise, the whole kind of institution might come crumbling down. And you would argue, I assume, that they can share that, right? Absolutely. And, you know, everything in moderation. But I think teachers look to leaders to help them process all of the emotions um, that, that, that teachers are going through. And especially during this difficult um, school year that we're all mm-hmm. living through right now. And, you know, the, the highs and the lows. And um, I don't know if you've seen some of the articles that have been circulating a lot this past year on toxic positivity or toxic optimism, but this idea that if we lean too hard into the positives, into just celebrating the victories and not acknowledging the difficulties, we can really create um, all sorts of adverse effects in terms of school culture and teacher mental health, where they're, where teachers are feeling like that they're their own struggles aren't being validated or acknowledged um, and that it isn't safe for them to voice some of the difficulties that they're having. So if you can help our listeners look at this from two perspectives, one, let's assume somebody's out there listening and, and they're that teacher who is struggling um, and and needs somebody to lean on. I mean, how do you, how do you create that situation to where it's comfortable? Yeah, I think it's it's such a good question. And of course, depends on the context that the people are in. But I think um, I always think about formal leadership roles and informal leadership roles. And for even for teachers who are struggling and feel like they don't trust the formal leaders in their school, often informal leaders, that teacher down the hallway, whether they're a grade level teammate or a department teammate, often they can be just as high leverage in terms of helping you escape a doom loop or a slump that you're in. They can maybe help cover some of your classes. Maybe you can send a difficult student or two over to help them reset. They might be able to pop into your class during a difficult moment um, more quickly than a dean of students or an administrator might be able to. They might be able to just simply be a safe space to process what you're you're, um, living through uh, and help you figure out, you know, which maybe formal leaders might be worth reaching out to. You know, I don't talk about this in my recent ed leadership article on doom loops, but it won't surprise you that, you know, before I had met with my school leaders to kind of formally ask, formally ask for kind of aggressive supports in the fall, I had met with many uh, other colleagues off the record to kind of think about what those asks might be. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. And so then if you were a principal or, or a leader of any type, I guess a formal leader, as, as you refer to it, what should they be doing to create a, a more appropriate atmosphere for teacher mental health? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned in, in the article, I, I was at a, a young, um, you know, pretty high poverty school, a school where just had much less resources and a lot more trauma walking in the door than my school in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. And But my administrators very wisely had built in basically the bandwidth and the leverage to be able to respond to teacher doom loops over the course of the year. They knew that teachers were going to be struggling, that it was a young school that was asking a lot of teachers and students. And they had really made all sorts of room to be able to respond to teachers. They had open windows in their schedule for impromptu meetings. Um, They were able to quickly arrange coverage so that teachers could get off campus and recalibrate curriculum to better meet meet student needs. They were able to put in some quick schedule changes that made a big difference for me and a lot of colleagues. And as I talk about in my most recent piece, the the most high leverage thing that I found them do um, was that they basically were able to give me a different co-teacher for uh, one quarter, somebody who really knew the school culture 
and who is really able to help me restart the classroom management and, and classroom culture in my class. Yeah, let's let's set this up a little bit because the article you're referring to, it's titled Interrupting Doom Loops, Reflections on Mid-Year Teacher Exits. And, and the situation is, as you were mentioning, you, you were in the Boston area and you had a lot of success as a teacher. And I guess for whatever reason, you and your, your wife decided to move to, is it Ohio? Yeah, Central Ohio, my wife, it was my wife's turn in terms of letting her career dictate. But right. we've been very happy here in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, that's great. And, and but but the, the school was totally different than yeah. than what you were at in the Boston area. And you, and you yeah. I guess you cite longer school days, larger classes, uh, many more students dealing with trauma, fewer support services. And, and I think you I think it kind of sums it up. You write. Um, I had never taught so many students living with grandparents or court-appointed guardians because their parents were incarcerated. So it was just a different setting. Yes, absolutely. And just such so humbling, again, for somebody who considered oneself an expert, at least in some ways, um, just realizing how contextually driven our work is as educators. And I'm sure you encounter it with your podcast guests who are just coming from all different areas of, of the you know, K-12 ed sphere. What was the stress for you? Was it just, you know, feeling like you couldn't wrap your arms around this new situation? Yeah, it was it was multifactorial as it, you know, often is when teachers enter doom loops. But um if, you know, I think trying to think about how to answer as concisely as possible. I think one one piece was just the number of students. I was basically working with three times as many students as I was previously for shorter periods in the day. Uh class sizes were about 50% larger. And um, there was the school had decided to get rid of an advisory structure that year as a way of ironically of trying to support teachers better taking something off their plate. But what ended up happening classically is that students were basically creating the school's culture rather than teachers. Mm -hmm. And there was zero consistency across the board, especially on my ninth grade team, really, um, in terms of what what was being asked of students. And it, it was my school was one where on paper, if you read the code of conduct, it was a very rigorous, you know, college preparatory school in terms of both what academics and behavior looked like, but in reality, it was very uneven. And I came in thinking that things were going to run like the code of conduct, and but then found out I was the only teacher assigning homework and the only teacher who was enforcing a lot of the policies in, in the code of conduct. So it, I quickly, you know, developed a lot of friction with students, and you know, uh, teachers out there, I'm sure, are used to really. Um, putting their heads down, working so hard during that first month of school to get the train on the tracks, but then seeing the train go pretty smoothly from there. But I, you know, month in just felt like I wasn't getting any traction with students. And at one point, it says you considered quitting, but you were well aware of how that might impact the students, I guess. Absolutely. And, you know, as I talk about in the most recent piece, there's all sorts of research about the implications that we know for when teachers leave mid-year, for student test scores, for student social emotional health, for the colleagues who have to pick up uh, the pieces, for administrators who have to, you know, onboard and hire and try and main st- maintain staff morale. Um, but I was I was basically using every teacher mental health tool that I knew at that point. I was exercising in the morning, meditating midday. I was calling veteran teacher friends in the evening to process. I found a therapist, and I was still barely getting through. Uh, and I'm somebody who loves teaching and, and you know, not, not totally used to being in that survival mindset. And you eventually got things back on track, which I think you've kind of alluded to already. I, I guess yeah. you said you first started with the informal uh, leaders and then eventually went to those formal leaders. And what was the plan that you guys came up with? 
Yeah, so I've alluded to a couple of the pieces already uh, about getting some coverage to go off-site for a couple of days and rework the curriculum, add more scaffolds so that my ninth graders could access the curriculum. Because, you know, um, folks like Cornelius Minor have written about this, but often we come in with this mindset of where students ought to be rather where than where they are. And I definitely suffered from that and had to figure out where my, my new ninth graders were and design curriculum for them and not penalize them for not maybe having the reading comprehension skills, for example, I wish they had come into the course. Um, I, they were able to combine a couple sections of mine um, in return for me taking out in a quiet study hall, but that basically gave me a little bit more breathing space during the day. Um, and lastly, I just can't emphasize this co-teaching piece. I know a lot of schools do this and have tried it, but again, what the school did, I just to, to put a kind of an extra emphasis on it. They, they weren't thinking if teachers struggle. They, the school leaders clearly went to the year thinking when teachers struggle and administrators had the capacity built into their schedule to help out as co-teachers or to provide other supports. And I think that's just such a phenomenal mindset that we need to, we need to normalize across the nation, that we, we can't be stigmatizing teachers for struggling during such difficult work, especially during a difficult year like this. And we just need to have these proactive resources ready for them. Well, and and that's interesting to use the word proactive. I mean, I guess if I'm if I'm a teacher listening who was maybe feeling like I'm in the same spot that that you were once describing, I mean, how what's the best way to go about it? It it probably took a little bit of, I don't know, pride swallowing or and, and a little courage to probably go to these leaders. And I guess you were fairly new to the program to say, yeah. I need help with these things, right? Absolutely. It I mean I mean, and I try to emphasize this in the article, but it was a year of, of humiliation and humbling for me. Um, it's those moments in life where we think we have some sort of skill skill or proficiency down, and then we're thrust in this new situation. And I had so many friends try and tell me, hey, when you're at a new school, you're going to feel like a first-year teacher again. But I'm just this overachiever who is like, I can work my way through things. And I really just got chewed up. And they you know, they, they, they hyped me up to colleagues and students as that hotshot teacher from Boston who's had great results. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was real. And I tried to be as vulnerable as possible from the jump about what I was, was dealing with. But I think for that teacher, just sorry to get back to your question, who's struggling, I'd, I'd encourage them to think about what's at stake in terms of being vulnerable. I think short term, you may give up a little bit of pride um, in terms of being vulnerable, but often the sooner you can interrupt a doom loop, the better. The sooner you can get resources in place, the better. I, I guarantee at your school, whether it's formal leaders or informal leaders, there's educators there who would be really eager to help you work through some of your problems. And the, you know, the sooner you can get to um, the root of some of these doom loops before the, you know, I'm mixing metaphors, but before the wounds really fester, I think is what I'm thinking. The, the better because as as you know the farther these 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 problems go into the school year there's more um, hurt and pain among teachers and students more exhaustion emotionally and physically so the the quicker we can we can uh, act and without embarrassment and guilt I think the better yeah and really this you're coming full circle for me here I mean this whole article yeah. is about interrupting doom loops and, and yeah. is that term and forgive me for not knowing this is that term something that's widely known in the education community I, I've never really heard that expression yes yeah, so I mean again this goes back to the urban charter world which you know was very hyped up on a lot of business school literature but it goes back to Jim Collins and all of his you know super best-selling good to great stuff mm. um, 
where he would study organizations about how they made the leap from good to great. And he talks about um, basically how if organizations start achieving some success, they can often attract better people, for example, and that drives them to even higher success. And he called that a flywheel, basically what psychologists would call a virtuous circle, mm -hmm. um, organizational theorists. And then the opposite of that, of course, is a doom loop or what people have been calling for much longer than Jim Collins, a vicious cycle or um, systems theorists call them upward or downward uh, reinforcing loops. And I had just come out of a master's class with the brilliant Jal Nada who writes about deeper learning and systems theory. And he had us thinking in these loops. So, you know, I was coming out of grad school, hoping to apply a lot more of his, his class to my teaching. But what it did help me think about and gave me a little bit of agency and understanding was thinking through these doom loops and, and, and how powerful they can be. And as, as I talk about, usually we associate these with young novice teachers um, who maybe struggle with classroom management and then students uh, misbehave even more. Uh, they get even more frustrated, students misbehave even more, but you know, they can happen to veteran teachers as happened to me and a couple other colleagues. Well, and, and so the goal here is to prevent those from happening. And you do offer yeah. kind of a list of suggestions, some of which you've kind of um, touched on, but uh, let's just kind of quickly run through those as we, we wrap up here. I mean, what yeah. should administrators or leaders at, in a school be doing to, to prevent these doom loops from happening or at least breaking the cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've already hit on a lot of them, actually. A couple that I haven't hit upon is just the importance of that leader modeling that vulnerability right from the jump and making clear what resources are available to teachers right from the jump. My school leader did a great job of having early temperature check meetings with, especially with new staff early on, so that he was building relationships and hearing about problems early on uh, before they hopefully escalated. Um, sim similarly, a lot of principals will do like a weekly survey or something where teachers are able to just kind of quickly give uh, principals data about what's working, what isn't. And just as much as uh, principals can have those communication channels wide open. And, and of course, I think it goes without saying they need to then act quickly because if they're gathering that data but not responding quickly, teachers will quickly lose faith in, in them. I know you say colleagues can, can reach out if they hear a commotion next door. Yeah. I guess everyone yeah. should kind of be prepped for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I talked about it a lot with the informal leadership already, but I think I think veteran teachers sometimes tend to underestimate um, the degree to which they can really be uh, the person who can save the day with that colleague next door. And, you know, I don't talk about this in the piece, and I, I'm curious to the degree to which you, you've heard about this, but, you know, I think veteran teachers, and I've been uh, guilty of this in the past myself, sometimes just develop a thick skin towards uh, that those teachers next door, you kind of look, as I talk about in that piece, you, you, you look at the teacher next door who's like crying in the, in the copy room as like this ticking time bomb that's just going to go off and there's not much you can do. You know, I'll, I didn't put this in the piece, but I've worked at a school where uh, some of the veteran teachers basically had like informal bets going about which teachers weren't going to uh, make it to Christmas. Yeah, and that's not and, the best. That's not the best atmosphere, right? Yeah. So I just encourage veteran teachers just to not underestimate how how transformative you can be, even if like, and often veteran teachers who don't have the formal leadership roles can be resent, resentful about that. It's like, why am I not the department chair or the official mentor teacher? But like, regardless of what hats you wear officially, you can be so transformative for that colleague down the hall. Well, uh, Henry Seaton, it's just, again, I appreciate how candid you've been in, in all these articles and just, you know, talking about your own experiences and saying, hey, you know, we have to bring this stuff out in the open. So uh, kudos to you for doing 
That. Thank you. My, my pleasure. I, it, it means a lot to, to share, share this all with you. If somebody wants to keep up with you, is there a good way to do that? I mean, do you like to hang out on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I've been trying to build up my Twitter account for the first time. <laughs> so I'm at Henry Seed and been pretty darn active. And that's a great way to, to reach me. Um, yeah. All right. Excellent. And that's uh, the last name is uh, S-E-T-O-N is the actual spelling on it. So you got Henry, it. Yep. The first name. Um, all right. Uh, Henry, do you have time and are you ready for our uh, pop quiz? Oh, let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Yeah. Hey, I, I'm an ELA teacher, especially, you know, I, I think we got to keep English and literacy at the forefront. You know, I used to be such a frarian, right? You got to learn to read words in order to then read the world around you and hopefully change it for the better. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian, or at least try to be here and say, I'm not sure we need to change that much. I think we just need to teach what we're teaching already better. Huh. I think you are contrarian out of a hundred and you're going to be episode 179. I think that's the first time I've heard, heard that answer. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really old school and snobby about excellent instruction. I just think we have a long way to go before we max out the subjects that we're already teaching. What does every child deserve? Oh man. I mean, I've, I'm just thinking about the great responses I've heard on some of your podcasts, but I think I just want to second what a lot of your guests have talked about the importance of children feeling unconditional love when they walk into the classroom. I just feel like there has been so much fear that permeates our classrooms, especially in this past year. And sometimes as teachers, we're even afraid of our students and the challenges that they bring to us, whether academics or behavior. And we just need to walk in and just evoke that unconditional love for students like that. No matter what you do, no matter what hijinks or obstacles you throw in my way, I'm going to love you. And like the more, the more hectic you act, the more I'm going to love you even more. And that nothing will be able to turn off my, my love and my light for you. And um, yeah. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Oh man. Well, you know, I'm so passionate about teacher sustainability. And I just think, especially in high poverty settings, that if we can teach, keep our top teachers even two times as long, three times as long as we currently do, it would it would transform um, what we're able to do for our most vulnerable students. You know, uh, a lot of youngins of, you know, my, my generation, people under 40, they may not want to teach their whole career, but if we can keep the top teachers in the classroom even a little bit longer, we can really uh, achieve, I think, whole new levels of outcomes for our students. What's the best gift to give an educator? Oh, man, I would just say time. I think I was talking about mission creep for teachers with, with a buddy last night, Seth Pierce, who's an amazing history teacher and department chair over in New York City. But, you know, if you look at the last couple decades, uh, teachers are expected to do more and more, um, whether uh, differentiated lesson planning based on data analysis or closing of restorative loops with students or more proactive reaching out to families. All of these things make sense and are rational in isolation, but the sum total is irrational. And I think we just need to figure out how to give teachers more space in the day to, to do these things. I think the, the urban charter sector, which I've been a part of a lot, is particularly guilty in terms of just asking too much of teachers and let's just give them more time to do, do these important tasks. Which teacher changed your life? Ooh, 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 so many, but I think the, the big shout out has to go out to Mr. Khan, my, my middle school and high school French teacher, who was basically like, you know, it's, it's a stereotype, but was the third parent who helped me process all sorts of like teenage angst. I was like a, uh, 
a, a boy at a boy's school who didn't fit in the quote unquote man box. I was this artsy, nerdy music kid. And he was just always there to, to listen and support. And, um, you know, all those things that you never felt comfortable talking about with your parents. He was that person. And oh, man, just amazing, transformative human being. And last question, pen or pencil? Either or. I just feel like learning gets messy and you got to be willing to get messy with either or. All right. Henry Seaton, I love it. Again, thank you so much for talking about this uh, important topic, teacher mental health. Uh, and thanks for joining us on Class Dismissed. My pleasure. Thank you for hosting all these important conversations. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.